All right, as you're having a seat, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, but I'm going I'm to begin by telling you a story years ago, and um, the years become longer as time goes on. But years ago, when Tristan and I were doing college ministry, we had a group of students that was called Servant Team. And Servant Team were student leaders who were in charge of different areas of ministry. So we had uh, an evangelism team and a prayer team and missions team, worship team, uh, retreat team. I can't, there are several other teams. But every year, uh, beginning of the semester, we would give them an opportunity to kind of pitch their team and invite students to come and join their team. And so I remember uh, one Sunday in particular, there across the street, and our prayer team leader stood up and he began talking about prayer. And he's doing a great job. I mean, he's really inspiring talking about the importance of prayer and the value of prayer. And then he made the statement about, you know, God is everywhere. And so he hears and sees all things. And he said, and God loves to hear our prayers. And then he paused and he said, well, unless they're ridiculous. (laughs) It's like, oh, I didn't expect that. I'm like, man, that still just stands out so vividly in my mind. God loves to hear your prayers. Well, unless they're ridiculous prayers. I mean, do you ever pray ridiculous prayers? I want you to think for a moment about what you actually pray for. When you pray, right? Because if we're honest, we, we kind of pray in, in cycles. Sometimes we don't pray much at all. And then when there's something that we really, really, really want in life that we don't have, we start praying again, right? Or if there's something that we really, really don't want out of life that we think we might get, then we start praying more. And when we're praying urgently and frequently and intensively, those are the prayers that reveal what we really think is important in life, right? Those, those kinds of prayers reveal what we think is most valuable, most important for us to have an absolutely complete and full life. Now, I noticed that this last year, uh, I got in, in this cycle where I was praying pretty intensively, but I was always praying about this, the same thing. And all of a sudden I had this moment with the Lord where I was like, hmm, am I, am I really praying for and about what's, what's most important. Because what I noticed I was praying for was I was praying that, that my kids would basically uh, experience no hardship ever in life. Which, I don't think that that's a ridiculous prayer. I don't think it's a bad prayer. But that was, the, that was kind of the dominant theme that I was praying day after day after day. Lord, let them have no hardship, no, no difficult experiences. Let their lives be smooth. Let them be easy. You know, these things they're struggling with right now, just take them away. It was just, you know, make, make life easy. And, you know, again, I, I don't think that that's ridiculous to pray for, but maybe it's not the most important thing to pray for. Maybe it's not what's highest and best that God wants to do in, in their lives in that moment. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at one of Paul's prayers. It's a short prayer. And actually, most of the prayers he records are short. We know that he would pray for hours and days at a time. But when he'd write them down, they were short, concise. And he was focusing on the things that he felt like were most important for a particular group of people at that point in time. And so I want you to observe what Paul prays for and what he doesn't pray for. And what's interesting is he actually started telling them about all the requests that he would make in verse 3. So I pray for you all of the time, and I make lots of requests for you. And the reason I pray for you all the time, and then he kind of takes a tangent, says because you have participated fully in the gospel, you've poured out your life for the gospel. Then in verse 9, he comes back around and explains to them specifically, when I pray, which is frequent for you, this is what I pray. Verse 9, this I pray 
that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, notice, he did not pray for their health or their safety or their prosperity, which are not bad things to pray for, right? That that circumstances would go well for them. That's not a bad thing to pray for. In fact, just a few verses later, he's going to thank them for praying that he would get out of prison, right? So it's not a bad thing. James will tell us, pray for the sick. Uh, Pray for those who are struggling with temptation and trial, that they'd have endurance. So praying for ourselves or people around us that our circumstances would get better is not a bad thing to pray for. It's not ridiculous. God does, in fact, want to hear all of our prayers. But what he focuses on as, as, in a sense, really the most important thing for these people right now is that they would grow in their ability to love, guided by the wisdom of God. So, Read with me again verse 9. He says, This is what I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. Now, what kind of love is he talking about? Is he talking about love for God or love for friends or family or for the church or for people who don't know Jesus outside the church? I'd say yes. Probably left it ambiguous because he's talking about all of the above. But what does he mean by love? I would argue that in our culture today, it's sometimes difficult for us to, to really understand what love is because our culture really skews the whole concept. Um, I talk about things that I, I love frequently, and around our house, one of the things, the, a topic of discussion that comes up is queso. I love queso, right? And I would say, you know, I love queso. I love, like, I love mad taco queso with the guacamole in it, and I love torchies queso, and so we will uh, talk about our love for queso at our house and rank all of the quesos in town. Love queso, which I... I think is probably kind of a shallow form of love, but I, I do. I, I have a deep affection for queso. And, uh, you know, maybe that's not what Paul's talking about. Um, or have you ever heard somebody say, well, you know, it was just love at first sight. It was just, it was just love at first sight. You ever heard that phrase before? I, I'm not sure that that's what, what love is. Um, if you're over 50, you will uh, remember the doors that made this famous, right? Hello. I love you, won't you tell me your name? Right, you remember that? Right. I, I love you. Wh- what's your name? Uh, I don't know, man. Love at first sight? No, maybe infatuation or something. But I don't think that that's what Paul's talking about. Right? There's a lot of confusion. What does it mean to love? I would also argue that even in Paul's day, they were confused about the concept of love. There were three Greek words in the New Testament used for love. The first was uh, eros. Very common word in Greek culture in that day from which we get the, the concept of erotic. It's, it's a sexual love. It's, it's taking. It's a possession. Uh, there's phileo, which means affection. Right? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. There's an affection for those who are near you, who, who you want to be with. And then there's a very rare word in Greek culture. It was agape. Hardly ever used. And so Jesus grabbed that word first and then his apostles took the word and they infused new meaning into the word because they wanted to describe a better form of love. So what I'd like for us to do is to look at a few passages in the New Testament to kind of uh, help us round out our definition, our understanding of love. So mark your place here in Philippians and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one of the most important 
chapters on love, not surprisingly one that's used a lot at weddings, where the topic seems to be love, right? 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. Paul said, this is love. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, notice, in Paul's definition here, love is not about attraction or affection. Love is not about anything in the object that's being loved. So if I were to say, I love my wife because she's patient. I love my wife because she's kind. I love my wife because she's long-suffering. I'd be missing the point of love. What I should say is, I love my wife by being patient. I love my wife when I'm patient toward her. That is love. Rather than saying, when she responds this way to me, that causes me to feel something toward her. Right? In, in all these definitions, there's a common theme in the world, which is there's something in the object that's being loved that elicits an emotion or a feeling or a desire or a longing within me rather than my choice to love. Right? So love is patient, not I love my wife because she's patient. I love my wife when I'm patient with her. That's how I show her love. Second passage, when you turn to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. Matthew 5 verse 43. Jesus said, uh, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. In other words, Jesus is saying, love isn't merely directed toward those who deserve your love. Love can be directed toward those who despise your love. Even those who reject you, those who do not reciprocate at all, you can still love. Or as Jesus would say later in the Gospel of John, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That is, this is the pinnacle of love that I'm going to show you, and that is when I give all that I am for you to have life. Or probably the most famous verse that all of us have memorized, for God has so loved the world, that is, God loved the world in such a manner, in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The essence of love is giving, not taking. So what is love? Well, love is this attitude, disposition, and a choice that I'm going to do and say what is best for you, even if it costs me deeply. My own desires, my own preferences, my own comfort, my own possessions, even my own needs or my own rights, even my life, I will give you to bless you. I will choose to act in terms of what's best for you, not in terms of what's best for me. That's what love is. Or kids, uh, as Olaf the snowman would say, love is putting someone else's needs before yours. Olaf got it right. That is love. Paul returns to the same theme, if you want to turn back to Philippians. Chapter 2, 
verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. That is, that's what love is. Choosing to give rather than to take. Or if I can say it differently, love is not an uncontrollable and overwhelming emotion. Love is a choice to act on behalf of someone else's good. So I can even, according to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I can love someone that I'm frustrated with. I can love someone that really, really makes me even angry. I can, I can love someone who despises my love. I can choose to love an enemy. I can choose to love in the absence of emotion. I can choose to love even when I have, in a sense, a negative emotion toward that person. I can still choose to act on their behalf. Now, love's not emotion or affection, but it can drive my emotions and affections. Because if I invest all of my life in something, pursuit of queso or that kiss, right, whatever, I mean, I'm really invested there. My time, my energy, my money, I'm putting everything there while my affection will begin to turn that direction. Whether that thing is a good thing or a bad thing. Notice what Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 8. He says, God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection that is produced by Jesus Christ. That is, I chose to invest my life, even my suffering, even beatings and imprisonment in you. And as a result, my affections begin to follow. And that is true even sometimes with our enemies. When we choose to bless them and not curse them. And we choose to consistently act for their good rather than act for their harm, God can even take our affections and our emotions and turn them. So, love is not emotion. Love is choice. But when we choose to love, God can begin to turn our emotions. And so, Paul prays for this one thing. He says, this is the best. This is the highest. Why? Because it reflects the image of God in you. You are most like God when you are choosing to love. Because God is love. Let me take you back again to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That is, so that you'll look like a son, so that you'll look like a daughter, so that you'll look like a family member. You will show the resemblance that you have to your Father. You'll display the image of God when you love. How is this possible? We love because he first loved us. You can't, you can't give away this kind of love until you've received it first from Jesus. What we experienced in Jesus Christ was God pouring out his best, Jesus giving his all to remove the debt of sin and also to give us a model for how to live. This is love. So when Jesus said, I got a new commandment for you, and it's this, love one another. And let me show you what I mean by that. And he got down on his hands and knees, and he washed their feet, and he served, and he sacrificed, and he said, this is just a small foreshadowing of what I'm going to do for you later, but I want you to behave the same way toward one another. And you might even n- not like each other moment to moment or feel friendly toward one another, but you can choose to act in one another's best interest at all times. And when you do that, you show that you're sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. Because God is love, and God made you in his image. And so when you love, you're behaving most like God. So let's read again verse 9. This I pray, Paul says, first and foremost for you, that your love may abound still more and more. He's not scolding them for being unloving. Because in fact, we know that they had been very loving. They had given sacrificially, 
to the churches throughout the region that were really suffering. Even the church in Jerusalem, they had, uh, in their own poverty, had poured out, they had given to these churches. Paul says, you are loving, but what I want to see in your lives is that you would abound more and more and more and more. Don't stop what you're doing. He gave the same encouragement to the church in Thessalonica. He said, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. That's one of uh, Paul's, actually one of his favorite words is this word abound. It means to be, to be overflowing. I think it's a word that he borrowed from the gospel writers. They used it to describe the, uh, the time, remember when Jesus, is, he fed the 5,000, and at the end of feeding the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over. That's the word for abundance, abounding. The leftovers, there were 12 more baskets. So everybody's completely full, and we've got an abundance. When he fed the 4,000, there were Seven baskets left over. The leftovers were the abundance. When he told the disciples, cast your net out. You can't catch anything, but put your net out one more time. And they pulled the net in so much that the nets were about to break. That word is abundance, abounding, right? That is net-breaking love, just so much. Imagine if we loved our friends and our family and our neighbor and our coworkers like this. They said, please stop. You're just, you're killing me with love. Just no more love. You're just loving and loving. You just keep doing good to me and blessing me. Uh, even when I don't reciprocate, that is net breaking abundance, leftover kind of love. Paul says, that's what I want for you. I'm not scolding you that you've never loved. What I'm saying is, why don't you pursue this kind of love? A love that only the spirit of God can produce inside of you. And he prays it because it's not inevitable. Right? Love can be stimulated to grow and become abounding, or love can grow cold. This is why Jesus rebuked the Ephesian church. So you're doing all kinds of great things, but I just have one thing against you. You left your first love. Return to your first love. So what is it that causes love to grow cold rather than abound? I'm going to give you a, a few ideas um, from my own experience. I'm going to give you three thoughts. The first is this. Uh, sometimes I externalize the difficulty in loving. That's what I mean by that. Uh, sometimes uh, it's really hard for me to love our campus pastor, Zach Niguiazzo. And, um, you know, and so I pray for him. And I, and I pray, God, would you make Zach more lovable? Because I'm having a hard time loving him, right? So what have I done? Well, I've externalized the difficulty in loving, and I've made it about Zach. There's something in Zach that makes it hard to love Zach. Zach needs to be fixed, rather than saying, there's something broken in me that causes me not to be able to pour out upon one who's, he's not an enemy, he's a friend. Now, I made all that up, and I told him that I was going to make it up. It's not true. I really, I don't ever have a hard time loving Zach, because Zach is, in fact, lovable, but you get the point. There are other people in my life so you just don't want to use those people as an illustration. <laughs> Pick somebody else. But have, have, you, have you never felt that? Man, that person's hard to love. Well, am I saying something about them or about me? I'm, I'm usually saying something about that person. I've externalized the struggle to love and made it that person's problem. Rather than, God, would you make Zach more lovable? God, would you make me more abounding in love. A second uh, reason that I think we struggle or uh, loving others is inhibited, that growth is inhibited, is because we become uh, really preoccupied 
with other priorities. Paul says this is really first and foremost because this is the very nature of God. This is the image of God in you. You're most like God when you love, but I get super distracted by other things in my life. There are other pursuits that I want to go after. Uh, Are you guys familiar with uh, Five Languages of Love? You ever read that? Okay, if you haven't, it's an excellent, excellent book. Um, Read it multiple times. I don't know if I'm getting any better at it, but it's it's a really good book. I don't know if you ever thought about um, God's love languages. Like, how does God receive love? What would be his top love language? I, I can't tell you definitively. Here's just, this is my, this is my gut on it. I think God's top lang- love language is quality time. Remember when Jesus is with uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus in their home, and Martha's scurrying about, and she's super busy with lots of different things. She says, Lord, tell my sister to help me out. Tell her she needs help. Things are busy around here. And he says, Martha, relax. Only one thing is necessary. Just I want you to sit at my feet. Be with me. Will there be time for those other priorities? And are those needs? Yeah, but they're not most important. There's one thing, and Mary's chosen the one thing that's most important. It's quality time. You're not always going to have me, Martha, with you physically. Why don't you, why don't you take this moment, the one thing, David prayed the same thing. He said, one thing I have asked from the Lord, and this is what I'm going to seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. I just want quality time with the Lord. Now, does the Lord receive love in other ways? Of course. Words of affirmation. What is that? Let's praise. Praise and worship. Words of affirmation. Um, Gifts. Yes, uh, we're told that our sacrifices of our time and our talents and our treasures even are like a fragrant aroma. They're worship to the Lord. He appreciates that. Acts of service, well, yeah, that's obedience. And Jesus says, if you have my commandments and keeps them, keep them, that shows that you love me. And when you love me, you get more intimacy with me. So God receives love in all those ways, but I would argue that number one is quality time. I, I can't say to my wife, I love you if I spend no time with you. How, how could I say that? I genuinely love you, but I'm never available for you. How is that love? It is not. But when we spend quality time, God transforms us to be more like him. We understand him better. We become more like him in love. So there are things that inhibit our love. There are things that stimulate our love. One of the, A third thing that I think inhibits our love is sometimes we're constrained by fear. And what I mean by that is this. Sometimes I'm afraid if I give like that, if I, I give my all, my, my desires, even my needs, my, my preferences, or even my possessions, if I give like that, who's going to give back to me? Or who's going to guard me or protect me? I make myself vulnerable in the act of giving. Will, will the Lord be there for me? Will he be enough for me if I choose to give like that? And I can become constrained in my love by fear. So it may be that I'm super distracted by ch- chasing after other priorities, or maybe that I'm, I'm fearful. Or maybe that uh, I'm externalizing and I'm saying, you know, the problem here is you and you're not lovable enough. All those things inhibit love. And that's why Paul says, this is my prayer. That your love would break the nets. Yeah, you're, you're, doing, you're doing it. But what would it look like if you, you just overwhelmed people with your love? How much more of the very nature and character of God would they see through us? 
Paul says, this is my prayer, that you would love, and that you would abound in love, but how? Let me give you a few thoughts. Read with me again verse 9. Paul says, this I pray, that your love would abound, still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. Grow in love, guided by wisdom. Paul says, what I want you to grow in is, first, real knowledge. A real, genuine knowledge. I did not love my wife before I met her. Shocking. Right? How could I? I never met her. I didn't know her. Knowledge opens up the door of love. Right? Knowledge is, is that opening. Now I can begin to love her. In fact, I did feel something when I first met her. Right? Not to you know, totally um, get myself in trouble this afternoon by my unromantic language. Uh, was it love and first sight? Uh, I, don't, I don't think you can say that at all. Uh, man, something happened because we spent four hours on our first date. I mean, we were, I don't know, I mean, I was smitten. Uh, maybe I was infatuated. I was something, right? But I grew to love her because I got to know her. And I began to appreciate her more and more. And I desired to give her more of my time, more of my energy, eventually more of my money. More of, right, more everything. I said, all right, you got all of me. If you'll take me, I will give all. That's love, right? Knowledge opened the door to love. I had the same experience in, uh, with, with my understanding of missions. I remember when I was, I think it was a freshman year in college, I had somebody come up to me and they said, do you have a heart for the world? I go, I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Do I have a heart for the world? But... Then I began to be exposed to God's love for the world. I took perspectives class, which is kind of um, uh, you know, just life-changing for me because I began to see you know, this is actually the pattern of all of Scripture. God has been going after men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, initiating with them. This is God's love for the world. And then I went on my first missions trip, and I, I, I gained knowledge. The door was opened up to me that this is what God loves and I began to know people, and he stimulated my love, my desire to get the gospel to them, to sacrifice my time and my talents and my treasure for these things. That is love. So I remember later I had a, a friend say, well, do you have a, what about, you have a heart for China? I go, wow, China's a big place. It's over a billion people. Do I have a heart for China? I don't know. But I will say, I love my friend Samuel, who's a church planter in China, because I know Samuel. And God open up my desire and my longing to see the gospel go out through him and then to share the things that he loves, which is his passion, his desire for his people to know Jesus Christ. Right? So knowledge opens up the door to love. With the terms of the gospel. How can someone love God if they don't know God? How can they love Jesus until they hear about Jesus. This is why we share the gospel, right? It's also why we share the gospel over and over and over again, because most people don't really understand it or absorb completely the depth of God's love for them the first time they hear the gospel. I mean, some do, but most don't. They, they need to hear it over and over and over again. So we share the gospel. I don't necessarily expect that every person will trust in Christ the first time I share the gospel with them. It might be the fifth time or the 20th time, or we might pray and share the gospel with them for decades, Right? Because we want that knowledge and understanding to grow, to open up their understanding that God loves them. Consequently, they can love God. So it may be this morning that you don't know the gospel. I mean, maybe you just came with a friend. Um, maybe you 
first time you've been in a church, maybe in church multiple times, and you have heard them talk about Jesus, but it's never really clicked what the gospel is. So let me remind you quickly what the gospel is. You're broken and I'm broken. The Bible calls it sin. We've done things that we knew we shouldn't do, but we chose to do it anyway. Or things that we know we, we should do, but we chose not to do them. We, we withheld some good. That's sin, and that sin creates a barrier between you and God. The Bible calls that death. It just means separation. You're not in relationship with God because of that brokenness inside of you, which the Bible calls sin. Jesus came to bridge that gap. Right? He came to bear the weight of your sin. He took all the sin for all people, every man and woman and child who's lived for all time upon himself. He hung on the cross and he bore the weight of your sin. He bore the weight of my sin so that debt of sin could be removed. Now, he was worthy to do that because he was perfect. And he was absolutely sinless son of God. No error, no wrong in him whatsoever. So God said, that's a worthy sacrifice to bear the weight of all sin. He put it upon Jesus. And Jesus did experience it. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced a separation from God that we truly cannot fully understand. And yet in doing so, he removed the debt of sin for us. So the moment that you believe that Jesus is the one who died for your sin and can remove that debt, you just say, God, thank you. Thank you that that Jesus paid it all. He removed that debt completely from me. The moment that you believe that debt of sin is removed and you have life that lasts forever with God, that's the gospel. And if you've never heard it before, or maybe you've heard it multiple times, maybe this morning is that moment when you can say, okay, I get it, God. Knowledge has opened up the doorway to love. You loved me, and I love you back. Thank you. Thank you. Knowledge, Paul says, opens up love. Grow in love, guided by knowledge, true knowledge, he says, which is uh, epignosis. One of, uh, again, one of his favorite words, uses it 15 times. It means knowledge of the ultimate reality of things. Who is God? Who are men and women? Why are they separated? Why is there anything? That's epignosis. He says, when you know that, it begins to open up the doorway to love. Knowledge plus discernment. Discernment is, a, is not a favorite word of Paul's. It's very, he only uses it once, actually. One other New Testament writer uses a similar word in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. Remember that solid food is for the mature. They can really take it in, solid food. Because of practice, they have their senses trained to discern good and evil. He's talking about things that are really good and things that are evil. Paul says, I want you to discern and approve then the things that are excellent, that is, the things literally that differ. So choose between not just good and evil, but between best and good. Knowledge guides love. Knowledge plus discernment, I understand what's best and then I choose what's best, that's wisdom. Wisdom means, literally in Hebrew, it means skillful living. It means living well. So what Paul is praying for is that their love would abound. It would be super abounding. It would be overflowing. It would be net-breaking kind of love that would just be remarkable in its effect. How? When it is guided by wisdom. So I want to give you a visual illustration of what I mean by this. This is uh, one of our favorite places on earth. This is Estes Park, Colorado. And there's a little water wheel at the top of the street, downtown street in Estes Park. Um, I don't know if this water wheel still works, but for centuries this is how power was generated 
by rivers up in the mountain. And there are actually two rivers that come together here. There's uh, Fall River and the Big Thompson River come together just a little below this in Estes Park. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. But sometimes uh, that river will overflow. Got a couple pictures for you here from, uh, I think this is 1982 and 2013, when the river overflowed its banks. Big Thompson, Fall Creek, they overflowed their banks. There was incredible destruction of property, and people even have lost their lives in these floods. Now, there are other years in which uh, the river runs dry. This is the Granbury, uh, Granby Reservoir, and in 2002, I think it was, it was nearly completely dry. So it's a visual illustration of a spiritual point. Knowledge and discernment are, together are wisdom, and they're like the banks of the river. And when the, the water is flowing, which is love, inside the banks of the river, man, it generates a lot of power. And it's transforming. Right? It's a beautiful thing. But when the river overflows its banks, there, there is no guidance. That love can actually become destructive. Right? So love without wisdom and knowledge, knowledge, discernment, overflowing its banks can actually be destructive. Let me give you an illustration. Um, some of you have children, and um, imagine that your, your kids begin to make foolish choices. I know this is a ridiculous illustration, but just imagine for a moment that once in a while your, your kids make foolish choices. And every time they make a choice, there's a consequence, but you know, you say, I really I love my kids, and I don't, I don't want them to experience the pain of that consequence. And so you rescue them, you take away the consequence, right? They do it again, and then you take away the consequence. You do it again, do it again, and you, you keep rescuing, and you keep rescuing, removing that consequence because you love your, your kids so much. And then what happens? They go out into life, and they don't understand the concept that actions have consequences. Have you genuinely loved? Have you genuinely loved? Because you kept intervening. Now, at times you should rescue and guard and protect, but, but when, should, when should you rescue and when should you allow someone to face the consequences? That's wisdom. That requires wisdom. What is the most loving thing? What is, what is in that person's best interest? Wisdom will guide me. Or perhaps uh, you've got a friend and your friend is, is dating this guy and, you know, and she's just, let's not say love, she's completely smitten. You go, wow, you know, I just want her to be happy. I just want her to be happy. That's my highest value in life is, is that my friend be happy. I just, I'm not going to tell her that he's really a jerk and he's you know, unkind and disrespectful and he's racked up lots of debt and he's partying like crazy on the weekends because she's just so happy. I, just, I can't tell her this truth about my friend. Is that love? That's not love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, right? So when do you speak and when do you not speak? Wisdom, right? Or as my kids used to say when they were little, they'd say, you know, Dad, we hate school. We don't want to go to school. And and I would say, you know, I love you so much. Don't go to school. (laughs) I didn't say that. I love you so much. My parents were terrible to me. They didn't love me. I hated school too, but they made me go to school. I'm not going to make you go to school. Is that love? No, kids. Yeah, even kids are shaking their head, right? You reluctantly, you're, no, okay, it's not. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. Love, okay, love, unbounded, not guided by wisdom, becomes destructive. Now, what's the other alternative? Got knowledge and discernment, but there's actually no love. That's the dried up reservoir. James talks about this. He says, 
You see someone who's hungry and they're cold, and you say, you know what? You should be warm and fed. I have a really good friend, and he said, his older brother would always say to me, go, you know, Andy, what you should do. <laughs> like, such an older sibling thing to say, right? You know what you should do? Well, yeah, I do know what I should do. Are you going to help me do it? No, uh, I'm just going to tell you what you should do, right? There's some knowledge and maybe a little discernment, but there is no love. There's no willingness to step into the situation and do or say what's best for the other person. You're lacking in love. Paul says, now you're just a clanging gong or a symbol because you don't have love. What do we need? We need to super abound in knowledge and discernment, wisdom and love. It is love that's focused and directed. That's how we grow in love. But then there's a, a third element he talks about, and that is hope. Read with me in verse 9 again. This I pray, that your love may, may abound, it may superbound. There may be leftovers. There's so much. The nets are breaking with your love. In real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may discern the things that are excellent, Choose between the things that are good and the things that are best. Why? So that you may be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. That someday we will stand before the Lord and he will evaluate our lives. And what he wants to do is reward us. There is an opportunity here, men and women. To be rewarded, to bring pleasure to the very heart of God. In fact, we're told to bring honor and glory and praise to God himself. Why? Because we lived on this earth reflecting the very nature of God who is loved by the way that we loved. So how will we be evaluated for that day? Did we love? Did we love? Or did we hold back? Because maybe we were, we were fearful. If I give and give and give of my time and my energy and my, my possessions and my finances, maybe even my physical being, my life itself, if I give it out, who will guard me? Who will protect me? Well, Jesus says this is the great paradox. You want to have life? Give it away. It's actually more blessed to give than to receive. Really? To believe that? He says, yeah, if you live this way, imagine how different life would be around you. Imagine how profoundly you would affect the people around you. And then you stand before Jesus on this way, on on this day, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, you loved well. That's the standard of evaluation. Did you love like Jesus loved? Did you give your life so that people could find him or be found by him? Did you make sacrifices so that Jesus could be found by these people? Did you make sacrifices of, of your pride or your time? Your expertise, your money, so that people could discover Jesus? Do you make sacrifices so that people who know him could go deeper and deeper in their relationship with him? Did you love? Did you love? Now, I want to give you just one application. I'm not going to give you lots of specifics this week. I want to give you just one, and that's this. I want to challenge you this week to pray. And as you're praying, I want you to just imagine how your life could affect the people around you if you loved like this. Right? You're not holding back. You're not getting distracted by other things. Right? But instead you're, just, you're, you're giving. Maybe even giving to enemies. Giving, expecting nothing in return. And I want to challenge you this week to courageously say, God, do this in my life. And I want to challenge you to pray this for uh, not just our church, but for the, the church in Bryan College Station. 
that God supernaturally would stir up something in our hearts. We say, yeah, we, we want to give and not take. And we want to give even if people don't give back. We just want to be those people who are just super abounding. And, you know, I, I feel like we are genuinely a very loving church or genuinely a giving church. Great illustration, you know, just a few weeks ago with the, the furniture giveaway. Man, every year we fill up both of those rooms and we give and we give. And we invited other churches to jump in with us and give. I feel like we're a very giving church. And I think Paul would say to us, uh, excel still more. But that's, that's great. But what if the Spirit broke through even more? How would lives be changed even more for the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so I want you to pray that for yourself. Pray that for your roommates. Not that God would make them more lovable, but he would make you more loving and teach them to love and for the church in this area. And pray that we would see people come to faith in Jesus Christ because of our love. As Jesus said, this is how they'll know that you're followers of mine. You're my disciples. If you have love for one another. So as we close, let's just take a few moments and start this uh, prayer. Uh, I'm going to give you a couple moments to pray for yourself, for your family members, for the church, and then I will close this in prayer. Would you bow with me? Father, I pray that we would be able to um, begin to enter this prayer with courage. I pray that because we've experienced uh, so deeply your love through Jesus Christ, that we would be so excited about the opportunity to pour out your love through us toward others. I pray, Father, that um, we wouldn't be content with where we are and the way that we we give of our lives to others, but we would be super abounding, that our love would just be net-breaking leftovers throughout this community. I pray, Father, that you would do this throughout all the churches here in Bryan College Station. We would see genuine revival, people trusting Christ for the first time, giving their lives over to, to him and to live for him. I pray, Father, that through us, the beauty of the gospel of Christ would shine. And we confess and we acknowledge that it is the kind of love that we want to see given is only accomplished through the power of your spirit in us. So, Father, I pray that you would do this in us and through us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You guys have a great week loving others. And uh, if you've got any good stories, uh, just shoot me an email. Let me know about it.